So I want to talk about everything. (laughs) Why did God create us? What's the Bible all about? What is it that God has always wanted? Those are some of the things we're going to address this morning. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. I hope you brought a packed lunch. Nah, we'll do all right. Okay, so we have to start at the beginning. For biblical theology, the beginning is not the fall. The beginning, of course, is Genesis 1, where we read this very familiar story about God's creation of the cosmos. And we read through the six days, and then we get to that seventh day. God rested. And we say, what? What's that all about? I mean, did he get tired? Did he need a break? What's going on here? I mean, I seem to remember something in Psalms about God doesn't slumber or sleep. What's up with God resting? And so here we find that in the very opening chapters of Scripture, we encounter something that confuses and mystifies us. And the reason that it does that is because we are not in the ancient world, where they all understood that perfectly well, with no further explanation. Because there's something that they all knew, whether they were Babylonians or Egyptians or Israelites, something they all knew that we do not know. And that is that when God, or even the gods, rest, they rest in temples. Ooh, didn't know that. And when they rest in temples, they don't rest in a bed. They don't rest on a recliner. They don't even rest on a futon. They rest on a throne. When a God rests, he takes his seat on the throne and his rest on the throne is his rule. Wow, that makes a difference. And what we learn is that this seven days of creation, where we tend to focus on six days and then a throwaway, that without that seventh day, those six days mean nothing. The seventh day is the climax of creation. The seventh day, God has ordered the entire cosmos with a purpose in mind. And that purpose is that he is going to dwell here and rule. Without that, this creation story isn't very meaningful. God's intention is to dwell among us. Because we're going to find out that that rest, that rule, 
takes place here among us. Now, we actually have this in the Bible, but we sometimes don't make the connection. If you take a look at Psalm 132, 14. Here God's talking about the temple. The psalmist is talking about the temple as the place of God's dwelling and the place of his rest. And so God says, this is my resting place. See, there it is right in the Bible that the temple is where God rests. But somehow we don't think of that when we're reading Genesis 1. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit, look at it, enthroned. And the next line, for I have desired it. In Genesis 1, in my view, God is not just creating material stuff. He's ordering the cosmos for a purpose. And that purpose is so that he will come and dwell among the people who he has created. In relationship. In fact, that's my answer to why did God create us? See, there's a conversation going on in the ancient world. Even most there didn't know there was a conversation going on because most everybody in the ancient world believed that the gods had created people because they needed slave labor. See, the gods of the Babylonians or the Egyptians, um, they, they were existing for a long time without people, and that, but they had to come up with their own food and their own housing and their own clothing because in that way, world of thinking, gods had needs. And so if there was nobody else to meet their needs, they had to meet their own needs until someday, some one day, one of them gets a great idea. If we create people, they can be our slaves. And they can provide our needs. And they can feed us sacrifices. They can house us temples. They can clothe us the statue with the finest clothing. They can entertain us. They can amuse us. They can pamper us in every way. What a great idea. And so in the rest of the ancient world, they believed that people had been created to meet the needs of the gods. And that created a situation, basically worship in the rest of the ancient world was meeting the needs of the gods. No right theology, no ethical living, just meet the needs of the gods. Keep the gods happy Because if you keep the gods happy, the gods will favor you and they'll bless you and they'll bring you success and favor. And so religion was transactional. You do for God, God does for you. Most religions in the world are like that throughout the history of the world. And unfortunately, for many Christians, they still look at their faith as transactional. 
That's not our topic for today, but you ought to think about that. So, Genesis 1 is all about God creating us to be dwelling with us, to be in relationship with us. And it tells us that he has desired it. That's what he has wanted. So, why did God create us? To dwell among us and be in relationship with us. That is what God has always wanted. What is the Bible all about? That. And we're going to track it. Genesis 2. There's God dwelling among his people. Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden is not just green space. Garden of Eden is sacred space. Because God is there. God dwelling in the midst of his people, just as he wanted. In relationship with his people, just as he planned. And so, things start out pretty good. But then, chapter 3. And people decide that instead of living out as God's images who are working alongside him to bring order to the world in relationship with him, they say something that we've never heard before. They say, I want to do it myself. Yeah, that's what we always do. I want it to be about me. And so they take wisdom, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Wisdom to see order restructured around themselves. And so they're cast out of the garden. We can call this the beginning of sin. I'm not going to object to that. We can call it the fall, although the Bible never does. But I think there's something more important here that It's hard to be more important than that, but more important that we miss. I would rather not call it the fall, although I see the point, fall from grace. Okay, I get that. But there's something else. I like to call it the loss. I really don't think it's going to catch on. But at any rate, the loss. Yes, they fell from grace, but they lost access to the presence of God. The very thing he had created them for, to be in that relationship, to, for them to live in his presence. And they lost access to the presence of God. And the rest of the Bible is a story about how you get it back. How you get back that access to God's presence. We see that in Genesis chapter 4, aren't we humming along? Genesis chapter 4, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is in the time of Seth, Adam and Eve's other son. I wonder if they called him that at school. Anyway, uh, (laughs) so in that time they began to call on the name of the Lord. That's not just praying. That expression is invoking God's presence. It's a specialized kind of phrase. Invoking God's presence. They want him back. Who wouldn't? 
They've lost that access to God's presence. And so we move through Genesis 1 through 11, and we get to chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. This is another place where we easily misunderstand the text because we don't know important things that they knew in the ancient world. Some of you who were in the seminar yesterday or at the reception last night heard me keep promising I would indeed talk about the Tower of Babel this morning. So here I go. It's not the, it's still going to be abbreviated, but. So the Tower of Babel, we often think in our intuitive approach that they're building a tower to go up to heaven. And it doesn't take a lot of research these days to figure out that that's not what these towers were for. The towers are called ziggurats, and they're built next to temples so that God will come down and enter his temple and be worshipped. Now, I've already explained to you what that was like in the ancient world. In the ancient world mentality, the God would come down and come into his temple to be worshipped, that is, have his needs met. Housed, fed, clothed, amused, entertained, pampered. And the people's worship was meeting the God's needs. And the expectation was that when they met the God's needs, the God would bless them, prosper them. That's what the ziggurat represents, that kind of thinking, bringing God down. What they're trying to do then, the builders are trying to restore the presence of God among them. They want God to come down and dwell among them. Getting God's presence back. But when we read the passage, we find that they had an ulterior motive, which we can now understand. They say that they're looking to make their name great. When we read that intuitively, we tend to think that this is their pride. They are arrogant and they, they want to be famous and they want their name to be great, greater than God or something like that. No, we, we have to look at what that phrase refers to. As I mentioned to some yesterday, the, the idea of making your name great is something that everybody in the ancient world wanted and there was nothing wrong with it generally. To make yourself a great name is anything that you do so that you will be remembered after you die. That often means good things. To try to do good things, memorable things. And your name will be great because people will remember you for that after you die. Lots of people want that. Don't tell me you never sat and thought about what people might say at your eulogy, at your funeral. What will people remember you for? What's that thing that's going to make your name something that people will remember? Many times in the ancient world, you do that by having kids, because it's your descendants who will remember you. So, in and of itself, to make a name isn't a negative thing. It's not something that they would be judged for. But here, there's a special certain situation. That is, here they are trying to get God's presence back. 
They are creating sacred space to bring him back to dwell among them. And when you are preparing a place for God's presence, it should not be to benefit yourself. Sacred space, a temple, should be built to make God's name great, not to make your name great. And that's a lesson that we often should have learned in the past history. The building of great cathedrals to make their name great. But the place where God dwells should be constructed to make his name great. And so it tells us God came down. Genesis 11.5, he came down and he looked around and he said, Nope, this is not, this is not how I am going to restore my presence to earth. Because it's all the wrong reasons. It's all about them. Not how it should be. And so that was a failed initiative on the part of the builders. A failed initiative to restore God's presence. So what happens after that? Well, You just go to the next chapter. You don't have to wait long here. Just go to the next chapter, Genesis 12, and you find out that God has a counter-initiative. God's counter-initiative is what we know of as the covenant. In the covenant, God makes a relationship with Abram. And that relationship has a goal. And it tells us that in Genesis 12, the early verses there. Through you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Hmm. How? Lots of times, if you even think of asking that question, you end up with the typical Sunday school answer. Jesus! Because they know they're always supposed to say Jesus. And certainly, all the nations of the earth are blessed through Jesus. And certainly, Jesus came through Abraham's family. Fine. But there's more to it than that. How will all the nations of the earth be blessed through Abraham and his family? Well, it's because God has chosen Abraham and his family to form a relationship with them. And as part of that relationship, he will come and dwell on earth. The tabernacle, the temple, the covenant is establishing a relationship with a people that God will then dwell among, and that will be a blessing for all the peoples of the earth, as God dwells on earth. Now, we can see this opening up when we turn to next passage, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. I will put my dwelling place among you. This is what he tells Israel. This is part of the Torah. Right? Leviticus here. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you. Presence. I will be your God. Relationship. You will be my people. Because this is what God created us for. This is what he always wanted. And so, in Israel, with the Israelites... He is going to return and his presence is going to be reestablished. 
That's what the covenant is for. When God comes down to Mount Sinai to give the Torah, we tend to think the main deal there is the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are pretty important. But he spends like ten verses giving the Ten Commandments. What takes up half the book of Exodus? The instructions for the tabernacle. That's what he gives them. He gives them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah because they need to know how to live in God's presence so that God's presence can be sustained, maintained. We don't want Eden all over again. We don't want the loss all over again. God's going to dwell here on earth, and you need to know how to conduct yourselves in his presence. Ten Commandments, Torah, lead to tabernacle and God's presence and relationship with his people, because that's what God has always wanted. So, time drags on. And as we start to think about the development, we move from tabernacle to temple. Time of Solomon, Solomon builds the temple, and we have Solomon's dedication, prayer. Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest here to his people, because God has given them rest in the land, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. And so may the Lord our God, you see it there, be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or forsake us. The presence of God is the main thing here. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, relationship that takes place. And so we have God's presence established among his people Israel. And things don't go so well. As we know, the Israelites seem to have trouble keeping the covenant And therefore, God's presence is constantly defiled. They are unfaithful to him. The relationship is not anything like it should be. And that goes on for several hundred years as God in his patience tries to draw his people back. But we get to that sad moment in the vision of Ezekiel where we find out that things are going to take a bad turn here. In Ezekiel chapter 10, he sees a vision of God's presence leaving the temple as the Babylonians are preparing to come in, invade Israel, destroy Jerusalem, dismantle the temple. And Ezekiel sees that vision, and it's like Eden all over again, the loss the loss of God's presence. But even in Ezekiel, further on in the book, he starts to offer some hope. Hope for restoration. Not just restoration to the land, but restoration spiritually. And so we learn in Ezekiel 34, 30, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, the Israelites, are my people, presence, relationship. 
But of course, even a, a century before Ezekiel, we had Isaiah talking about something like this. Isaiah talked about a child, a child whose name would be called Emmanuel. And you know what it means. God with us. That's not just a Christmas story. That's not about Jesus being born. You know, they never called him Emmanuel. I mean, they named, you know, he'll be called Emmanuel, but his name was Jesus. Jesus, he will save us. That's about what Jesus does on the cross. Emmanuel is about what he is. God incarnate with us. See, Jesus coming was more than about Jesus dying. It's important that he died. I'm sure you're glad to hear me say that. It's important that he died, but it's important that he lived. It's important that he came. It's important that he was incarnate. And we pick this up early on as we look in John chapter 1. As it tells us, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Are you picking up the thread here, folks? All the way through? Start to finish? We're not to finish yet, but he made his dwelling among us. That's the incarnation. It's a quantum leap from the Old Testament, from God dwelling in a temple to now God in the flesh being among us. And so we've seen his glory. They couldn't look on the glory of God in the temple in the Holy of Holies, but we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God among us. Now, of course, Jesus lives his life. And as he lives his life, he teaches about the kingdom of God. A kingdom of God in relationship with his people. That's what Jesus preaches. And then we get to the upper room, John 14. The last moments of Jesus with his disciples. And he tells them, I'm going to be going away. They're panic stricken. Because this feels like the loss all over again. God's presence leaving us. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? He tells them. So that. Where I am, you may also be. Do you see it? Relationship with God. Presence, God's presence. We will be with him. In the meantime, he says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending the comforter. And the disciples are all shaking their head and smiling. And Peter's saying, what's a comforter? Oh, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, they were in the dark a lot. <laughs> I'm sending you a comforter. 
Now, they're going to find that out. But in those following days after the resurrection, uh, the time comes for Jesus to return to heaven. And what is the very last thing he says to them? And those of you who know your Bible say, oh, well, that would be the Great Commission. You know, go into all the world and we can recite, you know, we memorize these verses. We can recite the Great Commission. And then we stop before that critical last sentence, the very last sentence that he speaks. Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is why I created you. This is what I've always wanted. Everything is about this. And so, again, scant weeks later, they're in the upper room, and there's another quantum leap. As the Spirit descends upon them, and flames sitting upon them, And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. Now it's not just God dwelling among us, the temple. It's not just God incarnate with us in Jesus. It is now the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. And Peter makes this clear to them in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's relationship. You will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. That's presence. And the promise is for you. This goes all the way back to the covenant. The promise of what? The promise of God dwelling with you because all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we move the next quantum leap. And so it is because of that that Paul can tell us that we are the temple of the living God. And look what Paul quotes when he says that. We are the temple of the living God, now God dwelling in us. And look at that, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We've heard that before, haven't we? All the way back. Because this has been God's plan and purpose all the time. And so we are the temple. And God dwells in us. And that's where we are today. But that's not the end of the story. We have to go to Revelation. You didn't believe I'd get there, did you? Okay. Have to go to Revelation. Describing new creation. And what's the first thing they say? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. God's presence, relationship with people. This is why God created us. This is what the Bible is all about. 
This is what God has always wanted. Now, what do we do with this? How does this change our belief, our thinking about the world around us? If we, if we really take this seriously, that we are the dwelling place of God, corporately, individually, we are the dwelling place of God, what does that mean for how we make our way through life? There's a fellow named Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book, maybe some of you have read it, it's, even though it's a couple centuries old. I wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence was a monk, and he lived in a monastery, and he had his daily tasks, and they would have their matins in the morning and their vespers in the evening, and then he would go about his tasks in the monastery. But he got thinking... Something's missing. This isn't quite, quite enough. So he decided that as he worked his jobs during the day, um, every hour he would kind of turn his mind toward God. He wouldn't, you know, take a break from his work. Just as he worked, turn his mind toward God and remind himself that God is with me. Uh, I'm in his presence. It's who I am. And so he started doing that, and he found out that that really helped him to kind of not just have bookends on the day, but to to really put his life in perspective. But then he said, you know, hours not an, not an off enough. So he started to say, every half hour, every half hour I'm going to turn my attention, just remind myself who I am and who God is, that I am his. And that worked well. He said, it's not enough. Every 15 minutes. Every 10 minutes. Every five minutes. Practicing the presence of God. Even during his busy day, as we all have busy days, remind yourself who you are and who God is and what he's always wanted. Let me close with a story. Several years ago, I was invited to a conference, and it was sort of a select conference, invitation only, small group of people. I wasn't quite sure why I'd been invited. And I got there and I started looking around and reading the name tags and just, wow. You know, becoming quickly starstruck. Look at the people that are here. And, And as I observed it, I found myself kind of drifting more and more toward the corner of the room and the wall, just, you know, I'm, I'm out of my environment here. This is not the kind of company I'm usually used to being in. And then I spotted across the room a name tag. I said, that person's here too. It's a person that I've, you know, very aware of their work and highly respected what they did. And I said, wow, I wonder if, boy, I wonder if I'll be able to meet that Person, meet him sometime during these couple days of the conference. I'll just 
go up and, no, no. I'll walk, no. I felt like Charlie Brown with the little red-headed girl, you know, where you can never quite manage to talk to her. Later in the day, we were put in smaller groups and, you know, 12, 15 people in a circle. And this person was in my group, sitting right across from me. I'm afraid I, I might not have paid a lot of attention to what was going on in the circle discussion because I was still just kind of starstruck. Wow. And, and strategizing. Okay, after it's over, I'll just kind of get up casually and sidle on over there and, and maybe introduce myself and shake his hand. No, no, I can't do it. I'm a, I'm, I really am an introvert. I know you might not. but I. So the, the session ends, and next thing I know, this guy comes bounding across the room. There's no other way to describe it. Bounding across the room, grabs my hand, starts shaking it, wringing it, saying, I've read a lot of what you've done. I really like it. I, I, I hope we can talk. I, I, I really want to learn more about what you're doing. And I said, well, you know, I'm pretty busy. Um, you know, maybe, you know, get your people to contact my people and we'll see. You know, maybe we can work. So- no, no, no. I don't even have people. Um, you know, and. <laughs> no, not at all. Instead, I'm there. If he ever lets go of my hand, I'm never going to wash it again. And whenever I think back on that, moment, and how I responded, how I was thinking, I confess I feel chastened in my heart. Because the fact is that the creator God of the universe has come bounding across space and time, not just to shake my hand and have a conversation, but to embrace me as his child. And he says, I want to be with you, not just for a brief conversation. I want to be with you and be in relationship with you. And how often... Do we have a, well, I'm kind of busy. You know, have your people get in touch with my people kind of thing. And fail to appreciate the significance of the fact that the God of the cosmos loves us. Wants to be with us. It's an Emmanuel theology. It's why God created us. It's what the Bible's all about. And it's what God has always wanted. Let's pray. Lord, help us to think bigger thoughts, to understand who you are and what you would like Not so much from us. This is not transactional. But what you want as you seek to be in relationship with us. 
Help us to practice your presence and to tune our will and our minds to the fact that you are with us. In Jesus' name.